Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight, we're going to be studying the topic of dialectical materialism. Specifically, we're going to be drawing from Marxism and Modern Idealism by John Lewis, Dialectical and Historical Materialism by Stalin, and On Practice and Contradiction by Mao. Okay, uh, so the three sections that we're going to be studying from, that we're going to be uh, going over are first, we're going to be talking about the history of dialectical materialism. Then we're going to be talking about how dialectical materialism works. Then we're going to be going over the practical application of dialectical materialism. So first off, dialectics. So Hegel, he formulated the main features of the original dialectical method. Uh, so essentially, he had a idealistic dialectic, which placed the idea as primary. Uh, and so essentially, the original formulation of dialectics was a very abstract, uh, it, it very much centered the conscious realm over the physical realm. However, Marx and Engels, they took the rational aspects of dialectics and turned it on its head by blending it with materialism. Uh, so materialism dates back to ancient philosophers uh, such as Democritus, uh, Epicurus in Greece. Uh, that, the early materialist philosophers, they actually theorized the basic idea of atoms. Uh, and so this was in like ancient, ancient civilization, and they were able to just kind of using the materialist method, figure out that matter was most likely comprised of these small particles. They didn't understand stuff like protons or neutrons, uh, but they were relatively advanced. However, unfortunately, the idealist school of thought, uh, as was pretty much uh, led by people such as Socrates and Plato, ended up taking dominance uh, for uh a long time uh and so the and so materialism at first was in a crude form that was called mechanistic materialism and so that was a very crude form of materialism that actually resembled idealism uh which we're going to be going over a little bit in the text that we're about to read from john lewis the Hegelian dialectics places the ideal as primary, while dialectics places the material and the objective as primary. Chapter three, the refutation of mechanistic materialism. A position almost identical with that of idealism has been reached by certain physiological materialists. Bertrand Russell, for instance, who is thoroughly idealist in his philosophy, nevertheless employs crude materialist arguments. These philosophies point out that our only evidence for the existence of an external world is given by certain sensations which are themselves the result of nervous currents activating certain cells in the brain. These nerve currents are set up by purely physical stimuli of heat, wave motion, pressure applied to certain nerve endings in the skin, eye, ear, and so forth. Now we have no reason at all to assume that the mental end effect produced by a brain cell at the end of a long chain of physical or physiological events is in any way like the original stimulus, any more than the explosion of a cartridge is like the finger which pressed the trigger. The physiology of the human body and the brain, it is argued, shuts us up to mental end effects. Everything that we can directly observe of the physical world, says Bertrand Russell, happens inside our heads and consists of mental events. 
The development of this point of view will lead us to the conclusion that the distinction between mind and matter is illusory. Thus, a purely materialistic view ends up as something indistinguishable from idealism. An interesting example, by the way, of the Marxist law of a thing passing over into its opposite, which the footnote there reads, as Lenin said, dialectic is the teaching of how contradictions may be and are identical, how they turn into each other, the one always in the process of turning into the other. Engels, too, has spoken of the moving of opposites in one another's direction. This position, however, must not be confused with the more limited and abstract notion that opposites merely logically presuppose each other. And then continuing the reading, but by a curious inconsistency, as Whitehead has pointed out, the same people who express themselves as though bodies, brains, and nerves were the only real things in an entirely imaginary world base all their evidence on the experimenter's perception of another person's body. But our evidence for the bodies we experiment upon and dissect in order to build up our science of physiology is of exactly the same type as, but weaker than, our evidence for the external world we are asked to deny. These materialists are treating bodies on materialist principles in order to treat all of the rest of the world on idealist principles, and it won't do. An excellent example, we may remark, of what Bosanquet called the meeting of extremes in contemporary philosophy. We have already indicated the reply. If we are quite sure that these end effects are obtained by a physical stimulus falling on a specific nerve ending or sense organ, which can be fully described as, of course, can the physical stimulus and its organ, if we are quite sure about the optic and other sensory <coughs> nerves which we have dissected out and experimented with, and of the brain with its nerve cells, localized functions, visual and auditory areas, etc., all the results of endless experiments. We are surely pretty certain about the existence of, at any rate, that much of the external world. And if we find no reason to doubt that, why doubt the rest? But the argument is, from the other end, so to speak, only Bishop Berkeley all over again. It is not a physiological argument for mentalism, but a philosophical argument. And to that, we have already replied. In short, Russell, like the bishop, confuses perceiving and the thing perceived, perception and the brain event. We do not perceive perceptions or even brain events. We perceive objects. To the biologist, no such doubts as to the existence of the external world are likely to occur because unless he is a very bad biologist, he is concerned all the time not with a dead specimen on a dissecting board in whose anatomy he is interested, but with a living organism functioning in an external environment, adapted to that environment and constantly reacting to it. The biologist works on two major assumptions. Firstly, that the animal is aware of its environment and has a made most elaborate apparatus of sense organs and responsive mechanisms to keep it aware and to make swift reaction possible. Secondly, he assumes that his organisms do function in relation to a real world and do know a great deal of it, enough of it to react satisfactorily and survive. In fact, if an animal is insufficiently aware of it, the external world will, in the form of the inanimate environment or living enemies, very speedily terminate its existence. The biologist also believes that while even his most primitive organisms possess this awareness and power of response, the most complex, including mammals and man, 
have developed awareness and response to an altogether amazing degree. Moreover, he knows that in the case of man, we have not only a very subtle and skillful control of behavior in relation to environmental demands, but foresight and self-awareness of which there is no evidence among the simpler forms of animal life. No biologist, except when he is thinking philosophically and thinking a wrong philosophy, is either a mentalist denying the external world or a mechanistic materialist. For him, an animal exists in relation to a real environment and reacts with it through awareness and the power to know it. All right. So, yeah, Marx and Engels took dialectics and they applied a materialist lens, which created dialectical materialism. Now, the important thing to note here is that not only did they use materialism to alter the form of dialectics, they also used dialectics to alter the form of materialism. Essentially, they took the correct aspects of idealism, namely that there are subjective limitations to what we can perceive in the world and what we can experience, but they it discarded the incorrect uh, assumptions of idealism, such as that the material world does not exist in any uh, significant way, and that we and that the mind and mental events are primary. And so they ended up creating dialectical materialism. Thank you. Uh, real quick. One's an observation, especially to newer uh, comrades. I know everybody talks in history about Marx being super into his studies and writing and writing. But when I uh, first started, I had no idea that Marxism in the slightest touched to this philosophical mindset of what makes reality. Um, and then that leads to my second point is when I was studying this. I liked I like to simplify things because I don't like to overcomplicate. And I found it that instead of like saying what uh, forgive me if the philosopher wrong, but instead of saying what Plato or the Greeks said, where you know what is reality, the, the Marx and everybody they took it and they said, well, like start from the base. Grass is real. Start from the real factual material and then and then work from there. So I just find it really fascinating. Thank you. I would like to say just on. That last slide before we pause, it is incorrect to just say put dialectics first and then a material lens next. That it's actually a materialism is primary, as was stated before by John Lewis, and that dialectics, and as Engels says, nature is proof of dialectics. That's the whole point that dialectics is inherent in the material world that we inhabit. Dialectical materialism is probably, you know, the core tenet of what makes Marxism a science. I mean, before when Engels wrote Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, I mean, back in the day, there was, you know, more of like an idealist type of utopian socialism, what he would call utopian socialism. But with the creation of this and kind of the determination that Marx and Engels made of, uh, you know, realizing and making the whole and understanding dialectical materialism and development is what created and made socialism scientific. And that being said, I mean, the question that I have is, this seems to be the hardest concept to grasp for anybody studying Marxism. I mean, I mean it took me years to really understand. And do we know exactly why that is? 
It is because it requires a complete shift in your mode of thinking and interacting with and experiencing the world in order to really grasp dialectical materialism. Uh, we are ingrained with, because it's not just a like analytical tool as some people will treat it as, it is a like completely different way of experiencing the world when properly applied, uh, as opposed to a metaphysical world outlook, which is what most of us are raised with from birth. So essentially, uh, it is contradictory to some of the basic truths that were taught as children. And so it requires a decent amount of unlearning and just restructuring the way that we think in order to really get a handle on it, uh, which is part of what makes it so difficult to grasp from the outset. The reason why dialectical materialism marks and angles is because dialectical materialism was already starting to become apparent it was just not in a cohesive form and we're forgetting that the reason why this was put into a cohesive form is because we shouldn't admit that practice is primary not really the thinking at first so that slide uh this the slide before last just kind of blew my mind just of connecting the biology and something that sounds like very empirical like an empiricist type of sense which is not necessarily dialectic i knew that uh, marx was really interested in a lot of different philosophies and he was really interested in in what in darwin's work in the theory of adaptation and you see dialectics playing in that and you could kind of see how historical materialism which maybe you're going to talk about is some kind of a uh, i don't want to miss characterize it, but it almost seems like a Darwinist, kind of a Darwinian way of looking at society. What I wanted to ask is something, I, I'm kind of ranting here, but can you break down that second two, that, that second slide about the empirical biology? There's, it, I, maybe I wasn't understanding it, but real quick, yeah, like I've been studying this for a long time and I still don't quite understand it. So, you know, if everyone's, if anyone's struggling with it, I mean, that's the point. We need to struggle with this. Can someone break that down to me, that that slide on, uh, what was it, like the biology senses? I It was kind of elusive to me. Yeah, I wanted to explain. This is predominant to being a Marxist. People don't may not see it. They might find it boring. They might find it uh, contradictory. They may say, well, I agree with the economics of Marx. I don't understand what Marx is saying here. It's very simple. The best way to put it this way, and it's something that we have to ask ourselves. Very simple. If a tree, and you've heard this before, falls in the forest, and nobody is in the forest, and nobody hears it, that tree falling. Did that tree still fall, or did that tree not fall because nobody heard it? And I think that's an important example, because to say what we use our senses is only real isn't correct. If we don't, if we're deaf, dumb, and blind, if we don't hear it, if we're not there, does that mean it didn't happen? Think about that. Why is this important? Because Marx says very clearly, and Lenin picks it up, 
two words, subjective and objective. Those words are important. When something is objective, it means it happens, it is there. Subjective is a person's view. Did it happen? I didn't hear it. And I'll leave you with that thought. We're going to the parts of uh, dialectical and historical materialism we're covering from Stalin will help answer your question, I think. Uh, but basically, with the biologist section, any biologist who is studying a uh, dissected animal as a thing into itself rather than a thing in relation with its environment is a really bad biologist. And on top of that, and then it's just... Uh, Biology is one of the fields where dialectics really shows itself most clearly uh, because one of the principles of dialectics is that it's present in nature. And so it's something that is inherent to the universe, basically, the process of dialectics. Uh, that's something that John Lewis talks about if you read this full text, actually. Um, and I, the, to really get into it would take a little bit more time than I want to take because I want to cover the next two sections, but pay close attention during the next presentation section. I think it'll help kind of explain that. Yes, thank you. So I hope this question isn't too far off the mark, but I'm trying or I I try to think of ways that I could possibly explain or frame this sort of stuff to like my coworkers who for the most part are kind of consumed with a sort of like manifests your like reality sort of mentality which is pretty much just like bootstraps like but they say manifest it or something like that or like if you can dream it you can do it and you know like to their credit like it's good to have like grit and self-determination and those sort of things but it it gets it goes too far to the point where it's basically like everyone in no matter what their circumstances has no one but themselves to blame is kind of the extreme idealism that I think most working people have. And so to the question is like, is there, can anyone recommend a way to explain how to maybe go about explaining this in layman's terms? Show, don't tell. Uh, I, I honestly wouldn't recommend just starting from explaining the dialectical materialism. I would start by like pointing out the contradictions and apply the dialectical method to what they are saying, basically. Uh, the term dialectics actually comes from an old method of discussion and debate, which was reliant on pointing out the contradictions within somebody's argument and then using those contradictions to reach a correct conclusion. Uh, and so uh, essentially pointing out the contradictions contradictions in their thinking and how they contradict with both themselves and material reality would be a good place to kind of get them to start questioning it. And then from there, just like basically if you master it and you actually get good at applying it yourself, you can walk them through the process of looking at things through a dialectical materialist lens without. So teach them by doing it with them, basically, is the best way I've found. Uh, it's very difficult to explain to somebody outside of a context like this with other Marxists. If it's just like a lay person, then doing it with them is really the best, like hold their hand through the process, basically, is the best advice I could give. 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm able to get in before the next section because uh, because of the text that we looked at by John Lewis, I wanted to ask the question, can somebody explain who John Lewis is uh, and why his opinions on this would matter? He was a British communist uh, back in the early 1900s. I actually don't know too many specifics about it besides that. I just know that the book was sent out with my new members packet and I loved it when I read it. Uh, hi. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, one of the things that I was very curious about whenever I first read something about dialectics was how they explained how uh, Marx and Engels took the rational kernel from Hegel, from Hegel and then took the inner kernel of materialism from Feuerbach. Is there anyone that can help clarify that? Thank you. Feuerbach was one of the prominent materialists at the time when uh, Marx and Engels formulated dialectical materialism. Uh, so essentially, it was just take it, it. It was like what we were talking about in the presentation, where they took what was correct from each and, and then took materialism and applied dialectics. Uh, and, and so they yeah, that, that's essentially what that was. Uh, I had a couple things I wanted to say, but I'll keep it short. Uh, first thing, Darwinism is a causal reaction. It is not a dialectical reaction. It is a vulgar reaction. A happened, so therefore B happened. It does not take into consideration the metaphysical output or the idyllic output or the personality output of these animals within the conditions that they live inside of, nor the role that they play within the ecosystem. Uh, it, it essentially just states that, okay, they need to develop this thing in order to survive. It's, it's, it's not dialectical, it is vulgar. Uh, and if you really want to get into the idyllic side of, uh, of, of this dialectic, you should pick up uh, Introduction to Hegel by Kojev. Very good book. Or you can read Hegel. The uh, Philosophy of Right by Hegel is a good book. Uh, uh, but there is, again, it's really out there. But it does introduce you to this more, uh, you know, spiral effect of things where uh, your ideas bounce off of a real thing that real thing being predominant and forming the ideals themselves and that spiral going and going dialectical and historical materialism by joseph stalin uh so we're going to be reading a couple of different sections from the text they're not in or well they are in order but they're not all connected so each slide won't just be immediately following the previous one uh, contrary to metaphysics, dialectics does not regard nature as an accidental agglomeration of things, of phenomena, unconnected with, isolated from, and independent of each other, but as a connected and integral whole, in which things, phenomena, are organically connected with, dependent on, and determined by each other. The dialectical method therefore holds that no phenomenon in nature can be understood if taken by itself, isolated from surrounding phenomena, inasmuch as any phenomenon in any realm of nature may become meaningless to us if it is not considered in connection with the surrounding conditions, but divorced from them, and that, vice versa, any phenomenon can be understood and explained if considered in its inseparable connection with surrounding phenomena, as one conditioned by surrounding phenomena. So essentially what this is saying in short is that you can't understand the part without understanding the whole uh, would be a good way to summarize this. 
the dialectical method regards as important primarily not that which at the given moment seems to be durable and yet is already beginning to die away, but that which is arising and developing, even though at the given moment it may appear to not be to be not durable, for the dialectical method considers invincible only that which is arising and developing. All nature, says Engels, from the smallest thing to the biggest, from grains of sand to suns, from protista, the primary living cells, to man, has its existence in eternal coming into being and going out of being, in a ceaseless flux, in unresting motion and change. Therefore, dialectics, Engels says, takes things and their perceptual images essentially in their interconnection in their concatenation, in their movement, in their rise and disappearance. Uh, so uh, this is something that we can see in the development of class struggle. Uh, the capitalist class is that which seems durable and is beginning to die away while the working class is arising and developing. And we know that the working class is the class that will ultimately overtake capitalists and overthrow capitalism to establish socialism. The dialectical method, therefore, holds that the process of development should be understood not as movement in a circle, not as a simple repetition of what has already occurred, but as an onward and upward movement, as a transition from an old qualitative state to a new qualitative state, as a development from the simple to the complex, from the lower to the higher. Nature, says Engels, is the test of dialectics, and it must be said for modern natural science that it has furnished extremely rich and daily increasing materials for this test, and has thus proved that in the last analysis, nature's process is dialectical and not metaphysical, that it does not move in an internally uniform and constantly repeated circle, but passes through a real history. Here, prime mention should be made of Darwin, who dealt a severe blow to the metaphysical conception of nature by proving that the organic world of today, plants and animals, and consequently man too, is all a product of a process of development that has been in progress for millions of years. The dialectical method, therefore, holds that the process of development from the lower to the higher takes place not as a harmonious unfolding of phenomena, but as a disclosure of the contradictions inherent in things and phenomena, as a struggle of opposite tendencies, which struggle, which operate on the basis of these contradictions. In its proper meaning, Lenin says, dialectics is the study of the contradiction within the very essence of things, and further, development is the struggle of opposites. Such, in brief, are the principal features of the Marxist dialectical method. And so each of those sections that we just read was from uh, the beginning of the text here uh, that's named here. And it was different uh, segments from each section that go over the primary principles of dialectical materialism. Uh, this last slide, uh, one thing that is important uh, to add to that is that everything has both internal and external contradictions. Uh, so... And in this development uh, and in uh, dialectics, the internal contradictions are what is primary to how a thing develops. Uh, so an example of that is so within international politics, the primary thing which develops what happens to a country is the internal contradictions within that country the different political groups, the different classes that exist within that country, the way that people relate to each other economically and socially. 
different social institutions that exist within that country, material resources that are available within that country, uh, different nationalities that live within that country and the nation national conflict that exists. Uh, and then there are also external contradictions, that country's relationship with the international community, which does influence how a country develops, but the primary contradictions are what's primary there or the internal contradictions are what's primary there. The external contradictions, well influencing its development, uh, do so secondary to the internal contradictions. So dialectical materialism is a new mode of thinking and analysis, the proper application of which requires a total shift in the way we think of and interact with the world. Uh, as communists, we need to strive to apply this in literally everything. If there is a problem in your personal life, you should try to analyze it through a dialectical materialist method. Uh, if there is a news story, try to think of it with a dialectical materialist outlook. There is very, there is pretty much nothing in life that we can't look at with dialectical materialism. I mean, while you're looking a plant grow, you can see dialectics at play within the plant growing. The internal contradictions within the seed determine what type of plant it will come out and how that plant will form. The external contradictions determine whether or not it will grow and how high it will grow. A dialectical relationship is a relationship between two things which are contradictory and influence the development of each other. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that pretty much sums that up. Dialectical materialism is not a simple idea, but a law of nature that guides the development of everything. And I think that this is a good point to reiterate something that we say a lot in this school and within the PCUSA, which is that Marxism-Leninism is a science. It is a science, comrades. That is, that is something that we cannot forget. It, it is not just a uh, school of thought. It, it is not a collection of ideas. It is a scientific school. The big thing is that ideas do not exist in a vacuum. The they are influenced by the material conditions of your current society. And the material conditions of your current society are affected by the ideas and you know, theories at the time. I'm also timing myself as well. Um, and that they they influence each other, right? If you think of it as a, a spiral, think of it essentially that you have an idea and something happens that questions the idea. There's a counter thesis statement, an antithesis. Well, if there's one of those two has to be right or both of them are wrong. Those two ideas then have to meet and then out of that synthesis comes a new idea. Either one of the two idea wins or there's a new idea that comes out that is a sort of synthesis of both of them. And that's how we, you know, Marxists view society as through a dialectical materialist lens. That's the, that's the really big picture of it, um, to put it very simply. Um, and to answer the second question, I hope I, uh, are ideas and materials separate? No. They both influence one another. Uh, they're both part of class and they both affect one another. Thank you. That's all. Uh, yes. My first question is, um, why can't we just analyze the world in a science, through a scientific lens? Why does it have to be a specifically dialectical materialist lens? And then um, responding to the question about um, can a Christian be a dialectical materialist? 
I would say that the fall or the curse, whatever you want to call it, is the reason that the world operates in, a, in such a dialectical um, way where, where everything, nothing exists without opposition and contradiction. Um, as for the materialist part, I would say no, absolutely not. I don't think that they're compatible. That's just my take on it. That's all. And then, you know, um, as for the, can ideas and material exist without each other? You know, obviously in a religious worldview, ideas came first in a, in a strictly materialist material came first. So it's not, I don't think there's a simple answer to that one. All right. Thank you, comrade. And uh, to briefly answer your first question, looking at the world through a dialectical materialist lens, it lens is looking at it through a scientific lens. Uh, dialectical materialism is essentially uh the scientific method advanced uh to put it in a very crude way uh but yeah like um science is dialectical and it is materialist uh, dialectical materialism is a scientific method of analyzing the world yeah first of all i would like to say that jv Sullen's pamphlet has is riddled with errors because first of all he fails to mention any places contradiction last he decides that things are arising from the new in contradiction with the old. That's incorrect. It's the struggle and unity of opposites, which results in the destruction, say, in a proletarian revolution, the overthrow of the bourgeoisie. That's the main point of dialectics. The problem is that the rest of the pamphlet, and I don't recommend, in fact, we should get rid of J.V. Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism from the world as soon as possible. But the rest of it is filled with Aristotelian metaphysical boxing. And the problem is that it also lays an idealist basis, not calling Stalin an idealist. But, and this comes from the fact that Stalin picked up this idealist elements up from his uh, theological seminar at Tiflis. I would, that's all I have to say. I, I wanted a clarification with uh, the primary contradiction being internal. Be, in the world, when we view within a country, it's a uh, struggle between capitalist class and, uh, and proletariat. It seems to be trumped by the imperial contradiction. Wouldn't we say that the external, in this case, of the imperialized nation is primary to the internal struggle between the, the national bourgeoisie and proletariat? That presents the biggest contradiction facing them within their revolutionary struggle. However, the development of the country itself is primarily directed because even imperialism happens with cooperation from a segment of the national bourgeoisie of the imperialized country, which often helps dictate the form that that imperialism will take and the specifics of how that takes. And imperialism being overthrown is directed by internal contradictions and internal forces. And so it presents the largest contradiction to the working class uh, in revolution. However, the the actual development of the country itself is primarily determined by its internal contradictions, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, a couple of things that came to my mind. Number one, 
when I first came into this movement, the way they explained it to me was very simple. I haven't gotten that tonight in this class. I apologize for saying that, but I haven't gotten that. Here's what I was told. You take water and you put it in a tea kettle. You add heat to it. That water now boils and it becomes steam. So what was first in the form of water, now it's in the form of steam. When you add coal to it, it becomes ice, a solid. So that water would be a liquid, a steam, and a solid at different times. That state of my mind, that the essence of something changes over a period of time, but it still stays the same. That's one thing. The second thing, why does a person join a communist party? Italy, Ireland, United States, they join because they agree with the economic analysis of that society of capitalism. They can disagree on other things. Not every communist in a party is a Marxist. That's obvious. The basis of our ideology is Marxism and Leninism. But I have found that there are people who join the party for other reasons. Some of it quite close to a religion. They think it gives the answer to the oppression of mankind. And it's a form of brotherhood. We're all one family. So they join the party. But they could still philosophically have a different view. And in Italy, that, that was big. And in Ireland, that's also big. So I just want to mention that person could join the party, but it doesn't necessarily mean in reality that they're Marxist. They may have joined the party for other reasons. Thank you. So this question popped up a couple months ago uh, about why dialectic and not vulgar Marxism. Uh, so essentially, vulgar Marxism is a linear causation, right? Uh, let's take the instance of the brain. You feel sad because of a, 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 a because of an absolute uh, link of electrochemical processes, right? You get you uh, you get broken up with. Oh, you're sad. A causal reaction. Uh, it is not taking into consideration the evolutionary process that uh, occurred to form your human brain in the form that it takes currently. It does not take into consideration the effect that the society you live in and the role you play in that society has on that formation of your brain. So yes, things might appear to be empirical or Platonian, but indeed there is an aspect of Aristotelian or idealist uh, uh, the processes there that lie in contradiction with the materialist world. Now, the materialist world might be predominant here. The brain, when you first look at it, might look like a causal reaction of uh, electrochemical processes, whatever, uh, uh, but it is not. There is a lot more influencing those processes than just, oh, my girlfriend broke up with me, I'm sad. So I remember reading in uh, uh, Comrade Stalin's work here, uh, and maybe I'm misquoting it. I would like someone to go into detail why he said this. He said something along the lines of nature is objective. Oh, well, what does he mean by that? 
like nature's objective? Does I mean that seems pretty I don't know, dogmatic. Nature is objective. It's not that our interpretation of it is always objective, but the way that nature exists is always objective. Uh because reality pre-exists our perception of reality and it always exists in its objective state uh our perception of it is influenced subjectively but it is but reality itself is objective nature operates on objective processes it's our interpretation of it that is subjective and can be flawed and misplaced Yeah, just really quick on the uh, objectivity of nature. If you look at the way in which nature operates, there's a natural order. There's natural laws in the universe that govern and dictate how everything works. I mean, the bee, the bees pollinate the fl- the foliage which in return creates food that we need to survive, right? Essentially what what stalin was saying here was um you know all we are doing is just analyzing the natural laws of the universe and how they work in the terms and the effects and there's a there's a connection between all of these natural laws of the universe and how everything works and that's what marxism does so that's what i wanted to say Yeah, I actually just want a second one I had to say uh you had to say about uh the topic of objectivity versus subjectivity. That's really a Hegelian thing as well. Hegelian's main contradictions had to do with the subject versus the object. Uh, essentially, the things in nature in reality are objects. They're objective. Your perception of that object is subjective. All right, and now we're going to be reading from sections of On Practice by Comrade Mao Zedong. Lenin said practice is higher than theoretical knowledge for it has not only the dignity of universality but also of immediate actuality the marxist philosophy of dialectical materialism has two outstanding characteristics one is its class nature it openly avows that dialectical materialism is in the service of the proletariat the other is its practicality it emphasizes the dependence of theory on practice emphasizes that theory is based on practice and in turn serves practice the truth of any knowledge or theory is determined not by subjective feelings but only by objective results in social practice only social practice can be the criterion of truth the standpoint of practice is the primary and basic standpoint in the dialectical materialist theory of knowledge uh so to put this in another way comrade mal puts it that i think is a very good way to summarize this is the only way to know the taste of a pear is to change the pear by taking a bite out of it uh that is essentially like a very simplified version of how to understand this uh practice comes first because without that practical experience of changing the thing you don't understand the thing and you have a lack of knowledge about that thing so the dialectical materialist method should be used to inform our analysis of various situations looking at the objective whole with all its contradictions so we can use this for things such as the war in ukraine 
Uh, we can use this for things such as strikes at home. We can use this for things such as local elections that are happening to critique the different politicians that are running in different ways. Uh, when analyzing a situation, we must first engage in the action of trying to change a thing or study those who have and then analyze the results. Uh, or in, to put it in uh, another way that Mao put it in a different text, no uh, investigation, no right to speak. Uh, you need to thoroughly investigate something before you actually come out with an analysis of it. Otherwise, you don't actually understand it. Uh, and so in any analysis, the objective reality must be primary. That which is arising must be placed before that which is decaying. And we must understand things as a whole through their internal and their external contradictions. Uh, it's not enough for us to look at one part of an issue. We have to look at the whole thing and its parts. The most ridiculous person in the world is the, quote, know-all who picks up a smattering of hearsay knowledge and proclaims themselves the world's number one authority. This merely shows that they have not taken a proper measure of themselves. Knowledge is a matter of science, and no dishonesty or conceit whatsoever is permissible. What is required is definitely the reverse honesty and modesty. If you want knowledge, you must take part in the practice of changing reality. If you want to know the taste of a pear, you must change the pear by eating it yourself. If you want to know the structure and properties of the atom, you must make physical and chemical experiments to change the state of the atom. If you want to know the theory and methods of revolution, you must take part in revolution. I am not sure I can handle it. We often hear this remark when a comrade hesitates to accept an assignment. Why are they unsure of themselves? Because they have no systematic understanding of the content and circumstances of the assignment, or because they have had little or no contact with such work, and so the laws governing it are beyond them. After a detailed analysis of the nature and circumstances of the assignment, they will feel more sure of themselves and do it willingly. If they spend some time at the job and gain experience, and if they are a person who is willing to look into matters with an open mind and not one who approaches problems subjectively, one-sidedly, and superficially, then they can draw conclusions for themselves as to how to go about the job and do it with much more courage. Only those who are subjective, one-sided, and superficial in their approach to problems will smugly issue orders or directives the moment they arrive on the scene without considering the circumstances, without viewing things in their totality, their history and their present state as a whole, and without getting to the essence of things, their nature and the internal relations between one thing and another. Such people are bound to trip and fall. Okay, again, we were all brought up with axioms or sayings. I came through the new left when I was 14, 15, and the influence was telling us everything we were taught was wrong. As I got older and I became wiser, I began to see the opposite, that every saying has a strong element of truth in it. And this goes to this one. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. I have seen that in our party. 
I've seen that generally in the left and in society. Ignorance is bliss. That's another saying that's so correct to us. We didn't know about things. So we had a view of it. But when we find out more information, what we used to call a level of consciousness has changed. The communist movement of Marx had, did not have the science that we have today. We don't have the science of 15, 20, 80 years from now. We can only make like a computer, whatever you put into us, we're going to use that information to give you an answer. The words subjective, which was mentioned in Mao, mentioned in Lenin, mentioned in Marx, is very important. It is what your personal view is, what your experience tells you. Subjective is individual. We know in our party that individualness destroys the collective every time. It does never add to the collective. The collective has to be supreme, and the collective is composed of discussions of the individuals, but the individuals themselves do not make the final analysis. It's the collective. So subjectivity means individual. Objectivity is what we all came to a conclusion and, and, and understand. It's basically a collective thing, objectivity. What is not what we want it to be. What is is objective what we want it to be or how we see it is subjective which is not compatible not compatible with the communist party functioning thank you okay to go on that um what we just read from comrade mao it's just you see that today um when people become so like essentialists just ideological in their mentality and their ideology we can't do that so when we argue with people you know like i don't even have arguments with people anymore because i i kind of find arguments sort of anti-dialectical or kind of bourgeois in the sense that you're never going to win an argument when you have to look at things dialectically it's there's too much stuff to talk about and obviously people like fascists can easily take advantage of that when they're mentality is so well not critical and it's just stuck in a certain ideological set the, that's kind of the point i guess and uh, a word of advice to anybody who feels compelled to argue with people uh it can be cathartic but don't it's uh it's non-productive it's performative and there's a saying that i really like um arguing with somebody who's willfully ignorant is like playing chess with a pigeon it doesn't matter how good you are at chess. The pigeon is just going to shit on the board, knock over all the pieces, then strut around like it won. Yes. Now, this is the text I would actually recommend as compared to Stalin's. <clears throat> because, as said, we need to actually, as scientists, enrich our knowledge through the primary mode, which is practice. Also, read on contradiction that's the other part i would recommend uh brilliant points i would also i would also like to say 
I think that the uh, last passage that we read uh, also is very interesting uh, on account that it reminds me of, a, of, a, of another scenario. Yeah, I think one of the things that sort of helped me kind of understand dialectical materialism a little bit better is really just reading about the modes of production and how those arose, you know, how we went from sort of like primitive communism and nomadic culture into slavery and to feudalism and that type of stuff. I feel like if you, if you read along, like how it is that that's broken down, it, it gets you into the mode of thinking about like, what are the primary contradictions in the society and how does that struggle lead you into the next phase of production, which is really what um, dialectics is. It's the, it's the supreme social science in that it studies the mode of production and the mode of production guarantees the reality that we're currently existing in. For help in understanding the dialectical materialist method, one uh, piece of advice that I think would apply to a lot of people who are uh, self-ascribed Marxist-Leninists or communists, read less, do more. Uh, reading theory is awesome. Uh, reading theory is great. Having an understanding of it is essential. Do stuff. Uh, do, do stuff. That, that's the best way to really understand these concepts. Uh, organize your workplace, organize a tenants' union, uh, get out into community grassroots organizations and build relationships with them. Uh, it's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to read about it. It's not enough to theorize about it. You got to do it. Otherwise, you'll never actually understand it. Who understands cars better? Somebody who reads manuals for 30 years straight or somebody who spent their entire life working in an engine? Uh, like, like there is a definite difference in quality of knowledge between experience and uh, simple abstract theory. Uh, well, my first question was going to be for to see if uh, they could expand more upon the differences between uh, Stalin's text and, and Mao's, because um, I'm interested on that. Uh, but the other thing was, I was thinking when you asked to like bring up an example of what you think might be like a dialectical relationship in the world. Um, one of the things that I've, I've thought of as a dialectical relationship, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, is like the relationship between industrialization and like, you know, building our societies and the environment itself, like environmental degradation. Um, because like when I see I see a lot of ultra leftists out there that will say, you know, we can't build anything in the world. We can't even build the things that will help to reverse climate change because, you know, it'll take down a tree and they take it to this what seems like an extreme idealist standpoint. But then it seems like, you know, there's the super capitalist. Oh, well, we can just go ahead and keep fossil fuel production and we can do this, that and the other with, you know, our industry. And, you know, I feel like uh, us as communists, we would want a synthesis of that. Am I correct on that? Thank you, comrade. And yes, absolutely. The relationship between industry and nature is a dialectical relationship. <clears throat> yeah. So you said um, kind of give an example of a dialectical uh, relationship in the world today. Well, for me, the the dialectical relationship is the uh, U.S.-Iran relations. My family is from Iran. And when you when you really analyze it through a dialectical lens, it makes sense. What you have is you have two Western or two class societies, an Islamic class society and a Western class society. They operate in 
similar ways, a lot of similar ways, some difference, but whatever. But however, the contradiction between these two countries is essentially driven by the material interests. One of them is a deeply religious Muslim country, Shia Muslim country. And the other one is kind of more of a Christian majority country. And ultimately that is dialectical materialism to me. So I wanted to kind of give that example. Uh, thank you, comrade. And yeah, I would actually expand that to say that every single uh, relationship between countries represents a dialectical relationship in action. So I've been also thinking about my previous question. So I think I've got a pretty good dialectical development. And I'm going to pick Starbucks because Starbucks is a very good example of what we call uh, conscious capitalism. Meaning, you know, it's basically the idea that it's understood that capitalism it requires some sort of amount of exploitation. So the way that ca uh, conscious capitalism gets around this is it basically produces a bunch of propaganda talking about how great and happy all of their workers are. And it's it might be one of the pioneers, but, you know, like Whole Foods and a lot of other places do this. And what they reap from this is they get to charge everybody an extra dollar for their coffees so that when they go in, they don't feel like crap because they have some schmuck behind the cash register who's overworked and underpaid. At least that's the sort of farce. The reality is, is they're also staunchly defending that you can be a good company and still be for profit. And 90. that's the first contradiction is that's false. So then all of the uh, workers still get screwed over and overworked, underpaid, and then exposed to deadly viruses, uh, so on and so forth. So then we form unions. So that's the next development. And I have coworkers who did not understand why Starbucks was so anti-union right uh, in the early stages because they associate Two. Starbucks and unions to be both good things. And that's a contradiction that is also developing. Um, so I'll leave it about it that the next stage is we win the contract and we'll see what happens after that. But that's the best I've got as far as explaining a dialectical thing from my perspective. Another dialectical situation I've been thinking about was also economic. Not only the uh, contradiction between development and, and, and the uh, environmental externalities of that, but also balancing uh, the ability to manage the supply and demand structures and uh, how to maintain cohesion between them. You know, another example of dialectical materialism, or at least thinking of things in a dialectical way is the cre you know how corporations treat the environment because when you understand how corporations view things you understand why they're doing things the way they are right everyone knows that the current path that we're on is bad for the environment even the corporations they've known for the last 50 years but they don't do anything about it why because that cuts into their bottom lines um and that's really all they care about at the end of the day it's not about helping people it's not about saving lives or improving lives in any way. It's about generating profit. 
Um, my father and I get into this fight. It's a bit of a long-winded story, but I fight with him a lot because of his job. He works for the pharmaceutical companies, and his job is to apply mathematics. He's a brilliant man, PhD, everything. But he uses his statistical knowledge to essentially decide whether or not it is worth it for a company to release drugs based on the number of people it will kill. If it's below a certain percentage, then it is considered still profitable. And then they release the drugs anyway, knowing even though knowing that one out of 10 or one out of 100 people will die. Because, and I didn't understand how he could possibly do something like that, how a corporation could view something so cynically until I applied dialectal materialism. Understanding that at the end of the day, they don't view it as humans. They view us as sources of wealth, as pools of wealth. And they view the environment in that same vein. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed what I had to say about uh, industrialization and the environment. I think if you would give it serious uh, consideration, uh, you would realize that uh, pursuing a green agenda was the prevention of the development of Africa uh, on sovereign means, is the prevention of the development of the southern world uh, on their own means. Uh, we can't just expect them to use uh, solar panels or windmills. We don't even have a net positive uh, in terms of energy output uh, uh, solar panels yet. The only country so far is China who can produce uh, uh, solar panels extremely cheaply, cheaply by dumping a ton of coal into a process, melting it down and creating the uh, uh, solar panels themselves. And what does that cause? environmental destruction. So it is an ongoing uh, uh, spiral. And I don't think that the justification for just pursuing green technology, I really think that is extremely capitalistic. I think that's what the globalists are pushing for. And I think it purposely introduces vassalage to the Southern world. So I think that's a really good dialectic to talk about. Uh, Yeah. So one other contradiction that I was going to talk about and sat here thinking about it, of course, it leads to other ones here in the U.S. is the difference between uh, those states that were sort of the old uh, original industrial states that developed quite rapidly while a lot of the portions of the states were stuck in the agricultural state. Um, but these days we've seen the shift from those states where industry has been around longer to states where industry hasn't been around that much. And one of the reasons is in states like North Carolina and a whole bunch of others, we have right to work laws, which means, you know, you don't have to be in in a union. Unions are incredibly weak. The pay and benefits that workers in states is low. So it's very attractive for companies to move um, to these states, uh, move manufacturing jobs. They're still in the U.S. They can still proudly say they're made in America, but they're destroying their old communities by taking those jobs away. And those old communities are wrestling with the decision of, whether to become right-to-work states to lure some companies back or to hold tight to those uh, rights that have been won Mm -hmm. and try to maintain whatever state of uh, economic development and what few benefits the working class have up there. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to say this has been a fascinating class. I enjoyed it. And it just goes to show, like, I think we were being dialectical here, kind of like in the very common sense of us just, you know, I don't think I, I thought I heard some disagreements with what I said and I thought I disagreed with things, but you got to struggle. You got to have that dialectic. And I think that's part of it. What I discussed is contained within the book, uh, Stalin Man of Contradiction by Kenneth Neil Cameron. And it contains a 
section on Stalin's pamphlet, Dialectical and Historical Materialism. I was going to bring up the fact that uh, there's an internal dialectical relationship between you and your employer. You, your employer demands a certain output from you. And so you play a role within that productive process. That productive process influences how you think about reality and how you perceive that reality. And your behavior inside of that productive process influences the productive process itself, creating a new influence upon you. Right. And it truly is a dialectical relation. You can analyze that with uh, a, a police. Why are the police so despotic? Well, they're employed by an employer who demands a certain output from them. Their behavior then influences that process and that process influences the output that is demanded upon them. Thank you. Yeah. One thing I was also going to say for an example of dialectical materialism, and I don't want to get too deep into this because right off the top of my head, uh, it's a little foggy and I can't think of a specific example. Uh, but with our party, we have internal and external contradictions. Of course, the internal contradictions being things like, say, we, we want to be the vanguard of working class, but we have a lot of people that come from, you know, the internet as opposed to out of uh, shops and whatever. Uh, so we use what we can to uh, try to promote the industrial concentration so that we can get the uh, people that we need more. Um, and then in terms of like an external contradiction, uh, the different uh, forces, uh, both in the communist movement and outside of the communist movement that we have to interact with and deal with and the, the forces and conditions inside the United States that we work with. But I. I don't know if I'm correct on that, but I wanted to give that as a, as a possible uh, example there. Thank you, comrade. And uh, yeah, the law of dialectics applies to politics as well. Um, there are dial. I, I'm not going to get into the specifics because I'm not about to discuss party business on the people's school in uh, any sort of detail. However, there are internal contradictions within the party that uh, and uh, conflict between contradictions that determine our party's development and progress. There are contradictions between our party and other parties on the broader left, uh, which it determined the development of the larger uh, movement of the anti-capitalist uh, movement in America, which also that is a situation where a relationship in different circumstances is both an internal and an external contradiction. Uh, the relationship between parties are, is an external contradiction for those parties, but is an internal contradiction for the broader anti-capitalist movement, uh, because those pieces are part of the whole of the anti-capitalist movement. However, if you're looking at the development of the individual parties, then the parties are the whole and the pieces of the party are the parts. And so, it, and so the relationship between the different parties takes on both an external and an internal contradiction role, depending on what context you're discussing it within. I would also definitely recommend the Marxism and Modern Idealism book by John Lewis. Uh, I don't think that it really gets enough love, to be honest. It's a pretty good book to read to help understand dialectical materialism. So I'm curious about education in the Soviet Union. Did they talk about historical materialism? Like, did they call it out as historical materialism or did they talk about dialectics? Um, was it part of a curriculum? I mean, that'd be very interesting to know about. 
I observed grammar school, high school, the university. That was talked about in the university, in philosophy classes as predominant. Never really comes into grammar school at all. And it does not come into the high school. It did not. I, I did not see that. Their schools were very similar to us, except one thing, very important. The teacher ran the classroom. Unlike here, where the children ran the school. We came out of the 60s, the me generation, children are human beings. They should be treated as equals. This is what I came out of. It's all new left liberalism. And uh, that's why the school failed here tremendously. Over there, the teacher was the king and the queen in the classroom. People came to the school in order to learn. They did not come to tell the teacher what to do. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And uh, if I may add briefly to that, um, I do know that in the PRC, I don't know about uh, high school or anything like that, but I do know that in their universities, they offer courses on stuff like this. I believe that there's a comrade in our own party who was actually educated in uh, China and has a degree in uh, Marxist philosophy or something like that. Uh, so they do have courses like that over in China uh, in, on the, at the university level. Uh, so um, I don't, uh, Comrade Angelo knows more than I do about the education system of the USSR, but I do know that about China. I have nothing uh, to say to class tonight. I think it was a class that was needed. And um, we were talking about having classics, classics in our school. And this class tonight was such a one. Thank you all for joining us.